One announcement, we now have available the uh, tracks the night before Christmas, so you can pick up 15, 20, 30, 40, take them, put them in your Christmas cards, give them to friends, whatever. Hope everybody enjoyed Dan on Sunday. He's, he's getting relaxed. He's enjoying himself coming down here. But it'll be a while before he's back. I won't be missing a Sunday for a while, I hope. This I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he will give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer, then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we have the truth of your word to illuminate our thinking and to guide our lives. Father, we pray now as we study your word that we would be uh, responsive to its teaching, that we would be able to understand these things and that they would help us to see things not just as they appear to us in terms of our physical senses, but that we may realize that There is far more to this universe than what we can see or touch or taste or feel. That we are indeed involved in a vast spiritual warfare, a conflict that has raged from eternity past among the angels, and that we have a critical role to play as believers in this church age. So, Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to understand these things and to challenge us with the importance of these doctrines we're studying. In Christ's name, amen. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we, or has it been? It just seems like so much has gone on. I think it was just a week ago. We covered uh, Satan's strategy. We're in James chapter 4, where we are in the second part of James 4, 7, dealing with the issue of resisting the devil and he will flee from you. One reason I am spending a lot of time on this particular clause and this particular mandate is because it is one of those subjects that is so poorly understood today and is mistaught and misrepresented. We live in a society and a culture now that has really given themselves over to mysticism. And everything has to do with angels, and nobody understands angels. You can watch TV shows that talk about angels, and you can watch movies that have to do with demons, and you can watch, there's some new movie coming out with uh, Arnold, and uh, it's end of the century, some kind of Y2K thing. I facetiously call it Y2K meets Rosemary's Baby. But there's always these apocalyptic-type movies, and everything that play off of, you know, loosely, very, very loosely based on Scripture. But people 
get all kinds of ideas about what the Scripture says and doesn't say. And sadly, churches are almost the last place in the world you can go to today to find any kind of truth about what's going on in terms of uh, spiritual warfare, demons, angels, any of those things. We live in an age where people want to shift responsibility. Last time I covered the fact that there's only two options to explain evil. Either evil is infinite or evil is finite. If evil is infinite, then it is part of the universe. It is normal. It never. It, it is a, as eternal as the universe. It's always been there. And if that's true, then you really ultimately have no basis for distinguishing evil from good because it, evil, suffering, misery, sin, all of this is just part and parcel of reality and there's no reason to distinguish evil from good or good from evil. That's why in your Eastern religions, such as Buddhism and Hinduism, everything ultimately pushes back to a monistic view, and that is why even when people die, they eventually, the highest state is to lose individual consciousness in what is termed in Hinduism nirvana. If evil is normal then it's not my fault that I do bad things because it's just the way the universe operates. That produces an environment in which victimization can flourish. And, of course, we live in a society where everybody's a victim. It's no longer my responsibility for doing evil, doing bad things, making bad decisions. It's somebody else's fault. And when that cultural concept finds pressures the church than what we find inside of Christianity. Because remember the principle, the church always mirrors the world around it. You look at the church in the 19th century, and in a lot of ways it reflects the culture, whether it's British culture in the 19th century in Victorian, in Victorian England, or whether it's a continental or German uh, Christianity. It's pressured by 19th century rationalism go back to the 15th century or the 9th century, whichever century you choose, the concepts that dominate the non-believing, the unbelieving world pressure the church, and the church tends to mirror those things. Back in the early church, one of the dominant ways of thinking was Neoplatonism. And so you had thinkers like Anselm and uh, St. Augustine and Bonaventure and others who were influenced by a Platonistic view. So their theology shaped and influenced by these external forces. Well, today we live in a world where the cosmic system out there is mystical. So people are looking for things in a mystical way, so they interpret the Scriptures mystically. And if, they, if the pressure from the world is to avoid responsibility, then it's not really my fault, it must be, Satan's fault. The devil's after me. It's a demon's fault. I, I struggle with a particular sin, whether it's anger, whether it's lust, whether it's alcoholism, drug abuse, whatever it is. It's not really my fault. There must be a demon of alcohol, a demon of, of anger, a demon of bitterness that is plaguing me. And until I somehow find some way to uh, rebuke, this is their, their language, rebuke or bind or get rid of that demon then I'm going to continue to have this problem. In other words, it's a failure to face up to the fact that I have a sin nature that is inherently evil and qualitatively as evil as any 
demonic or say or any demon sin nature or as qualitatively evil as Satan's sin nature because sin is sin the thing that distinguishes the sinfulness or the extent of the sinfulness of a human being is their volition the influence of, of various positive establishment principles or the um, the sinfulness the degree to which Satan and the demons can carry out and fulfill the lusts of their sin nature is not that their sin nature is worse than ours, but that they have such greater abilities than we have. They have greater uh, abilities of movement. They have greater greater intelligence. All of these things, so that the fulfillment of their sin nature is uh, much greater than ours. But see, we don't like to think that human beings, on their own, following the lust of the flesh, can be that evil. We really have a high view of ourselves, and the Scripture says that the heart is deceitful, deceitful and wicked above all things who can know it. And that's God's basic opinion of your nature. You may think you're wonderful, or your kids are wonderful, and they look so nice and sweet. But God says that they are as capable, potentially, because of the potential evil in, in their sin nature and in your sin nature, uh, given the right circumstances and negative volition, you too can be as evil as Adolf Hitler or uh, Ayatollah Khomeini or Saddam Hussein or anyone else because, and you don't need to have a demon present to be that evil. Now, I'm not saying that, that necessarily they were or they weren't. I don't think anybody can know. But we have to face the fact that we are involved in an angelic warfare, a spiritual warfare, and we have to realize that the knowledge about that spiritual warfare does not come from our own experience. We receive knowledge, or, or man has four bases for, for knowledge. You ask the question, how do I know truth? The first answer is on the basis of reason, and this is known as rationalism. Rationalism means that man's intellect is capable, because based on its own reasoning processes and using a rigorous system of logic, man is able to understand the universe and how the universe came to be. One of the foremost in the ancient world, the foremost representative of, of rationalism was Plato. In modern times, it is Descartes. But you can only go so far with the mind, and then you have to realize that your entire system of thought is based on a certain assumed first principles which are non-provable. And that's the weakness of the system. How do you know those things are true? Faith. You accept them by faith. And, and that is why both Cartesian rationalism and uh, Platonic idealism ultimately fell apart. And historically, they were both replaced with forms of empiricism. That ultimate truth comes from human not just simply experience, but study the scientific method through human senses. And in the ancient world, empiricism was represented by Aristotle. And in modern times, people like um, uh, the Englishman Barclay and John Locke represented empiricism. And empiricism grounds ultimate truth on the basis of man's ability to interpret his experiences and come up with truth. This is also based on the rigorous use of logic. But ultimately, 
It is based on a faith assumption that a belief in man's native intellectual ability to correctly interpret the data that comes to him through his senses. The third option, which is always a reaction historically, if you study philosophy and the history of ideas, there are always certain patterns. Rationalism falls apart. That's replaced by empiricism. Empiricism falls apart, and that always leads to a period of skepticism. Man can't live as a skeptic, so he says, okay, I'm just going to have to take some sort of subjective leap of faith, and uh, I'm going to base knowledge not on uh, intellect or experience, but just on some sort of intuitive sense of what is, so that if I meet somebody and they seem to be frothing at the mouth and they're uttering all sorts of blasphemies and cursing and they're uh, having seizures that uh, I've been taught about demonism, so therefore I intuit. I have a fuzzy, warm feeling in my heart, and therefore I know on the basis of this internal voice that this person is demon-possessed. And that's ultimately what's happening today, is it's just this intuitive sense that somehow I can intuit what's the, the ultimate sense of reality and in contrast to rationalism, which is based on a rigorous use of logic, and empiricism, which is based on a rigorous use of logic, mysticism is anti-logic. It is based on irrationalism. It doesn't matter what the facts are. I intuit this. And if the facts, rather than being derived from either reason or empiricism, are derived from the fourth arena of knowledge, revelation. If God has given me certain facts in revelation, then, and my intuition, my feeling, my gut reaction to some situation is different, then I'm going to have to reinterpret revelation in order to get it to conform to my intuition. Now, the reason this is important is because there have been several books written in the last 10 or 15 years arguing for the fact that Christians can be demon-possessed. Now, we're going to get into that subject in a more categorical manner a little later on this evening, and we're setting the stage for some things we're going to cover Sunday morning. So, I want to set the stage for Sunday morning so I'm taking things on the spiritual warfare a little, in a little bit of a disorganized way. I struggle with this today because I didn't get as far last Tuesday night as I wanted to. But I have to say some things tonight to set the stage for Sunday morning or we're going to really get bogged down when we get into Sunday morning. What's happening today is you have people like a professor of theology... Sometimes I wrestle with whether or not to name names. I don't name, when I do name names, it's not to run down a man's ministry. It is to illuminate the rather dull sheep. And I'm not talking about anyone here in particular. Don't think I'm insulting you. The rather dull sheep as to who out there is teaching what. I learned this lesson about the second year I was pastoring a church. At that time, there was a man 
famous internationally known pastor in Southern California who had written a book that was just loaded with heresy. And he mailed copies of that book to pastors and all the pastors in the country. And in that book, he talked about the fact that, that man's problem really wasn't sin. That was okay to talk about that in the Reformation maybe, but we had advanced in our understanding of things. We weren't so, so uh, uh, backward anymore. And man's real problem was self-esteem. And of course, Jesus died so that we could have positive self-esteem. And I taught about this from the... Uh, uh, it happened to fit into some things I was teaching. And I taught on that, and I didn't mention his name, but I did a pretty detailed analysis of what he taught, and he teaches it whenever he's on the television. I, you, you can watch him here on television every Sunday morning. And I didn't mention his name, and about a week later, uh, I, and it came from two different people who were in the congregation who were there when I taught, and they came up to me and they said, a Pastor, you know, I, I saw so-and-so on TV the other day. Wasn't that great? You know, they, did, they, they didn't make the connection between the, this, the heretical system I had outlined in detail and the fact that that's what this guy was really teaching. The Bible says that sheep are rather dull-witted. So sometimes I have found that no matter how plain I make it without mentioning somebody's name, the sheep just don't realize and they go right ahead listening to this guy and following right along because they just can't put two and two together and come up with four. So uh, I just say that because uh, I don't really want to run these guys down, but I do want to make sure people understand who's teaching what. And there's a man named Fred Dickerson who wrote a wonderful book called Angels, Elect and Holy. That was a textbook we had at seminary on angelology, which is great. It's still a classic published by Moody Press. He's a professor at Moody Bible Institute. And then there's another man... Uh, by the name of Neil Anderson, who teaches at Talbot Seminary out in Southern California. Now, the reason I mention them is both of these schools are known for being conservative, non-charismatic, non-Pentecostal, dispensational, Bible-based schools. And yet, both of these men have been teaching and doing, conducting seminars on... Uh, deliverance and demon possession of Christians for the last 15 or 20 years. And people get very confused over these particular issues. And ultimately, when you look at their argumentation, they don't argue from Scripture. They come back to and reinterpret Scripture but what they'll say is, okay, and this same thing happened to Dr. Unger, and I just think Dr. Unger did many wonderful things. And he initially wrote a book called Biblical Demonology in the early 50s, which is a great study of biblical demonology. But then he received hundreds of letters from missionaries on the mission field that claimed that uh, they had experiences, notice that, experiences with believers, who, people who they believed, considered believers, who they thought were demon-possessed. So he rewrote his book, and when he wrote his book on demons in the world today, he changed his position to teach that Christians could be demon-possessed. What caused him to change his position? Was it because he exegeted the Scriptures and derived from the Scriptures a new position? Or was it that he heard all these stories and experiences and then reinterpreted the Scripture 
on the basis of those experiences. That's why you have to watch methodology. Methodology is not neutral. And this is the same thing that's happening today is that people, instead of going strictly by the sufficiency of what God's Word says, they're coming up here to empiricism and ultimately that somehow there's this intuitive sense that I know enough about what goes on in the spirit realm, in the angelic realm, to where I have had enough experiences now and I have three file drawers full of case studies on people who have come to me that on the basis of that I can argue that Christians can be demon-possessed. Now I'm going to go back and reinterpret the Scriptures. So that's why this is important, why we have to take some time looking at the Scripture on this. Now last time, we began to introduce this by looking at the doctrine of Satan's strategy. The first thing we saw there is that Satan's MO is that he is the master counterfeiter, 2 Corinthians 11:13 through 15. I just want to run through these first four or five points by way of review and get into some New, new material. Satan's a master counterfeiter, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15. Satan always tries to keep men in ignorance of his real nature and the consequences of disobedience to God. He tries to keep men from understanding this. Scripture says he disguises himself as an angel of light. So when you watch these TV shows and they see these angels appear to them and they've got this warm, fuzzy light glow about them, one ought to immediately think about this particular passage that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Point two, Satan counterfeits the truth in a number of different ways. You have counterfeit doctrine in 1 Timothy 4.1, counterfeit teachers and prophets in 2 Corinthians 11.13-15, through 15. counterfeit communion table in 1 Corinthians 10.20-21. I know I'm going fast, but we covered this the last time. Counterfeit righteousness is based on legalism and morality, Matthew 19. 16 to 26. He counterfeits the gospel to obscure the truth of the gospel in 2 Corinthians 4 4 and 2 Corinthians 11 3 through 4. As a counterfeit spirituality, Galatians 3 2 through 3, and a counterfeit signs and wonders so that he can perform false miracles, false healings, pseudo tongues, that sort of thing, in order to distract believers and confuse unbelievers, 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 through 10. Point number three, Satan's primary method of distracting and blinding people to the truth is through false systems of thinking. The Bible calls this, the term, technical term is cosmos. Looks like this in the Greek, K-O-S-M-O-S, from which we get our term cosmic thinking. And the, he is called the ruler of this cosmos in John 12:31. So he has a plan, a policy, and a procedure in place. And he has literally thousands of options available to distract people from the truth. And point number four was that as a ruler, he is a failure. Satan wants to rule the world and bring order and peace to the world. And the fact that there is all of this chaos and famine and criminality and warfare is a testimony to his inability to control the environment and rule the earth rather than a sign that he is behind all of this. Point number five, Satan distorts the truth. And the passage here is in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. This is where we stopped the last time. Point number five, Satan distorts the truth 
Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Satan knows the Bible as well as any pastor, any theologian, any preacher, any believer. But he uses it, he twists it, he misinterprets the Scripture for his own ends. Uh, let's just turn there briefly. I want to show you some of these passages as we go, go by them. We'll come back and spend a little more time at a future date looking at this in detail. But I just want to point out a couple of things in terms of this whole scenario. This has to do with the testing of Christ to validate his claim to be Messiah at the initiation of his ministry. He has been uh, anointed by John the Baptist in in Jesus' unique baptism. And immediately after that, we're told that he was led up by means of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So this, first of all, we learn from this, that the Holy Spirit will not tempt us. Remember, James 1 says that God does not tempt us. But the Holy Spirit may put us in a position where we are tempted because it is through that testing that we apply doctrine, that we grow, and that we mature. And this is, if this was true for our Lord and Savior, it's just as true for us. And so just because you are being tempted does not mean that you are sinning. And just because you are being tested does not mean somehow that God has forgotten about you. You may be in a position of serious temptation and testing simply because that's where the Lord wants you at that particular time as He did with the Lord. The Lord spent 40 days, 40 nights fasting, and then He became hungry. So He, in His humanity, remember the Lord was undiminished deity and true humanity. In His human nature, He had all of the uh, shortcomings of a finite creature in terms of physical limitations. He thirsted, he hungered, he uh, would become weak, of course, after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. Incidentally, if you get, drink plenty of fluids, anyone can go that long. That's not a supernatural feat to go 40 days and 40 nights. So I understand it if a person goes through a fast, and that is not some spiritual exercise for the church age, just in case somebody has that question. Uh, Anybody can fast for that long. I understand that you can go about two or three days, and during the first two or three days of a fast, you'll still have hunger pains. And that after sometime the second or third day, I've gone four days, I think I was on a wilderness thing several years ago where we were isolated on the shore of Lake Superior, and we couldn't have any food with us. They really wanted us to... It was one of these things with the Christian college, and they wanted it to be a spiritual exercise, but... But the way they really convinced those of us who didn't want to fast to fast was that there were a lot of bears in the area and they would come after your food if you tried to sneak it out there. And they did, and they would, and they did. So uh, we had to go four days. We had plenty of water. All of Lake Superior is potable, so we were able to have all the water we wanted to drink because the average temperature on Lake Superior, the mean temperature, not the average, the mean temperature of Lake Superior is 34 degrees which means no bacteria can survive. So we had all the water we could drink. And after about the second day, you just weren't hungry anymore. Now, you may find that hard to believe. I, I, I do. My experience tells me different. But I went through that, so it, it, I vaguely remember that. And then your appetite will disappear, and it won't come back till about the 38th or 39th day, because you can't go much longer than 40 days fasting. 
So your appetite kicks back in around 38 or 39 days and you become hungry again. So the Lord just shows that this is a very natural scenario for him. He becomes hungry. He's at a point of weakness, physically weak, hasn't eaten in 40 days. This makes you very susceptible to temptation. And the tempter came to him and says, If, first class condition, if and you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. So his initial argument is based on a theological concept. He knows who Jesus is, that he is fully fully God, that he is undiminished deity, and he has the ability to turn the stones into bread. But that would be solving his problems through the use of his divine power, and that would violate God's plan and purposes for his life on the earth at the first advent. And notice how Jesus responds to the temptation. It's, it's a true theological concept. It's based on a true principle that Jesus could actually do this. But he answers and by using Scripture. Satan attacks with the temptation. Jesus, in effect, will see this when we come to the armor of God. When we talk about the Word of the Spirit, is the, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. We often think of that as, as offensive. What I'm going to show you in this study is that spiritual warfare is always defensive and the sword of the Spirit is not an offensive weapon. It is used, it was a, the short, uh, it was the short Machaira sword that the Roman soldiers carried and it was used defensively as well as offensively, but a defensive maneuver is a counter offensive stroke. And so what we see Jesus doing is using the word to, to uh, counter to block a, a thrust. He is simply, you have the temptation, he answers it with a principle from Scripture, and it's, he's using it, the Word of God, purely as a defensive maneuver. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then in verse 5, the devil took him into the holy city, that is Jerusalem, put him on the pinnacle of the temple, which was quite high, and there's a uh, cliff, high cliff on the back side of the temple, and he says, if you are the Son of God, and you are, first class condition, throw yourself down. And now he quotes Scripture. But he misinterprets the Scripture and misapplies the Scripture. He will give his angels charge concerning you, or on, on, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He's saying, look, the passage in Psalm 91, 11 and 12 clearly states that the angels won't let you kill yourself, so why don't you go ahead and throw yourself off? if you're really God. And Jesus responds by saying, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He counters with Scripture, accurately interpreted. And what that tells us is in spiritual conflict, spiritual warfare, the way to deal with temptation is to use the Word of God correctly. If you are misinterpreting the Word of God and taking it out of context and applying a promise to Israel for yourself, it doesn't do you any good. Let me say that again. Just because you're quoting Scripture doesn't mean that's going to solve the problem. You have to be correctly using Scripture, rightly dividing the word of truth. If you're taking a promise that God gave to Israel and you're trying to apply it to yourself, it's irrelevant. You're not using it correctly. So that's one reason believers often fail in the spiritual life is, number one, they don't know the truth. Number two, when they do know the Scripture, they, they they too are misapplying the Scriptures. So I just wanted to use Matthew 4, 1 to 11 to illustrate the principle that Satan knows but distorts in a very subtle manner the truth. 
Matthew 4, 1 through 11, and we will come back and analyze the moves there in, at a later date. The sixth point in terms of, of uh, Satan's strategy is the concept that is very popular today that we as believers, in order to defeat Satan, are to bind Satan. I've been to services where you've had deliverance ministers. Now, a deliverance minister is somebody who is involved in casting out demons from believers. It's a technical term used in, uh, and some of you are familiar with this, in uh, certain church environments where they believe the Christians can be demon-possessed. And so they will have services where those who have a demon or are plagued by a demon will come forward and then they'll rebuke the demon, they'll cast out Satan, they'll bind Satan, and they'll use all of this terminology. The problem is this is not biblically correct. And I want to look at a couple of passages that people use for this just to help us understand what the Bible is saying and what it's not saying. So since we're in Matthew already, turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, verse 29. Matthew chapter 12, verse 29. <coughs> In this particular passage, Jesus has cast out a demon from someone who is demon-possessed. And when the Pharisees heard about it, in verse 24, they said, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. This was a title that they had given to uh, Satan. And it means uh, Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Dung. And the flies, of course, are attracted to dung. So that's how it all sort of relates etymologically. And Jesus, verse 25, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. He's going to use a very sophisticated argument to counter their argument. He says, If a kingdom, that is Satan's kingdom, is divided against itself, uh, is la- divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself cannot stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. He, in other words, he would be running at cross purposes. How then shall his kingdom stand? And if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? There's an innuendo there that if I'm doing this by, 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 my, by Satan, then a fortiori, your own exorcists must also be doing this by the power of Satan. Now, we look at verse 29, he says, using this illustration, he says, Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house? In other words, here's a house. The strong man is is analogous to the demon or to Satan who is controlling that house. How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? And all he is saying there is is that, that the house here represents Israel. And there has been because of negative volition, this, and because the earth has been under Satan's domain as the prince of the power of the air, we see this same thing taught in John 12, which we just went through on Sunday morning, that Jesus came and by going to the cross, he is destroying the power of Satan over the earth, at least potentially. And that was why, if you remember in John 12, when uh, the Gentiles came and asked Andrew and Philip, to go to the Lord. Remember that? Think back a couple of weeks. And the Lord was troubled in spirit. He never talked to the Gentiles. 
But in that context, we talked about how you go back to Deuteronomy and all the nations are under demonic influence through idolatry. And Jesus is recognizing that in order to break that power, He is going to go to the cross. And in that passage, He talks about breaking the power of Satan. (coughs) Excuse me. That's exactly what we're talking about here. It is not a mandate that believers bind Satan. It is referring to what the Lord is going to do in restricting Satan's power at the cross. Now, there's another passage that people go to for binding, and this is in Matthew 16, verse 19. Matthew 16 is the famous passage where Jesus addresses the disciples, and He says, But who do you say that I am? Matthew 16, 15. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that's Aramaic for son of John, uh, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, that is his faith, there's a play on words here, I don't want to get distracted by that. On this rock, that is faith, I will build my church, the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's talking to the disciples, and you have to understand this terminology of binding and loosing in terms of rabbinic terminology. In rabbinic literature, binding and loosing are technical judicial terms. Binding means to give someone permission to do something, and loosing is uh, prohibition. So whatever you bind on earth, that refers to the fact that this is a description of the fact that if you explain the gospel to somebody and they respond by faith alone in Christ alone, then that binding, you have given them salvation and that is secured in heaven. What you do on the earth is done in heaven. What you do, um, whatever you loose, that is by means of condemning someone for failure to trust Christ for salvation, If you loose them on earth, they will be loosed in heaven. They will not have salvation. So binding and loosing is relation to apostolic authority in giving the gospel to unbelievers. Those who are saved are bound. Those who who reject the gospel are loosed and lose salvation. So this is also true in the Matthew 18.18 passage. Binding and loosing never refers to Satan. In fact, Satan is not bound in the Scripture until the uh, millennium. In Revelation chapter 20, Jesus bind, binds Satan. He and the false prophet and the Antichrist are bound and thrown in to the bottomless pit during the millennium, and they are not released until just at the end of the millennium when they lead the Gog and Magog revolution, and then God destroys them and their army. All of this is based upon, this teaching today is based on the idea that man is supposed to be engaged somehow in offensive action against Satan. But the terminology that we have throughout the scriptures is the word anthistemi. Looks like this, anthistemi, A-N-T-H-I-S-T-E-M-I. It's a compound of the Greek word anti plus histemi, which means to stand against, 
and came to mean to stand firm, to stand your ground, to take up a defensive posture. It was a technical military term for a defensive perimeter. Now, we're going to come back and look at a variety of passages where this is used, but to tie it together with what we've been talking about in James in terms of the fortress that God establishes for us, notice the sole fortress, a fortress is a defensive posture. You do not engage in offensive action from a fort. It is purely defensive. You cannot win any kind of engagement, though, by defensive action alone. That's what happened at the Alamo. All those men did, the 180 men who defended uh, Texas against the onslaught of the 5,000 or so Mexican troops, was to gain time. Time for Sam Houston to raise an army and time for them to go into retreat and time for the people to get out of the way until they finally met up at a little place called San Jacinto, San Jacinto, And at the Battle of San Jacinto, in 18 minutes, it was one of the most decisive battles in all of human history, written up in all the military textbooks as such. Uh, Sam Houston executed a lightning surprise attack on the Mexican troops, and in 18 minutes, he was outnumbered about 8 or 9 to 1. He resoundingly defeated the Mexican army in an offensive maneuver. You know, the same thing was true in in the Civil War. as we refer to it down south, the War of Northern Aggression. And uh, Lee recognized that that all he ever wanted to do was to defend the south, but he knew that he could never win the war unless he took the war to the enemy. So twice he went north. Once he was defeated at Antietam and the second time at Gettysburg, and after that the south never had a chance. But he recognized the principle that victory is due to offensive action. But victory in the Christian life is not due to our offensive action because our command is to stay in the fortress on this day meet, to take up a defensive posture. And, of course, Paul uses the imagery of the Roman soldier's armor in Ephesians chapter 6, 10 and following, where several times he uses the word on this day meet. Let's turn there quickly. And then we'll move on to the next arena. We'll come back. I want to come back and look at this in a little more detail, but I want to just emphasize the importance of this. Ephesians 6.10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God. This is the sole fortress that we've been talking about. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to what? Take, attack the devil? No. Rebuke the devil? No. Bind the devil? No. Stand firm. Stand your ground. On this day, mean against the schemes of the devil. Excuse me. In that particular passage, it is just the you have on this day, me, and then you have a his day, me. H i s t e m i. And there's an interchange here, and they both mean the same thing. They're synonymous. That you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We need to realize we're engaged in a spiritual conflict. And therefore, your rationalism, your native reason, your ability to interpret your experience will do you no good. 
because you and I cannot see the enemy. We don't know anything about the enemy except what God tells us. And we do not have the ability, therefore, to intuit correctly anything about the enemy and what goes on in the spiritual realm. The only way we know anything about spiritual warfare and the existence of angels and demons, etc., and what they can do and to be able to know accurately is what the Word of God tells us. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Then in verse 13, Therefore, he repeats the command, Take up the full armor of God that you may be able to, what? That you may be able to resist on this day me in the evil day. Stand your ground. And having done everything to stand firm, his day me once again. And then the command in verse 14 is histemi. It's the present imperative. Histemi, therefore, stand firm, having girded your loins with the truth. The only point I want to make in looking at that is that this is a defensive term. So the believer's position in relationship to Satan and demons is not to try to figure out what they're doing. It is not to try to uh, engage them in combat. I've seen preachers get up on the stage and jump up and down and all sorts of histrionics that they're kicking the stuffing out of the devil and all of these other things. And it, besides being blasphemous, it misleads many believers into thinking that they can have this uh, quick fix solution to the problems in their life and it's no longer their problem and their sin nature. It's a problem of some demon. And the Scriptures clearly teach that it is through a defensive maneuver. Now, who engages the enemy offensively? The Lord. The battle is the Lord's. It is the Lord who takes care of the believer. That's why the command in Scripture in James 4.7 is resist the devil. That's our command to resist, defensive. And he will flee from us. Why? Because then the Lord comes to our aid. And that brings us to... which we must go into before we go any further. Now, tonight what I wanted to do was just hit some of these passages to give you sort of a, an overview so you know where we're going and bring in some of these ideas. And now I want to hone in on the key issues and then we'll come back and do some specific uh, exegesis on those passages. Demon influence and demon possession. Point number one. Demons can affect humans in three different ways. Demons can affect humans in three different ways. Demon influence. Demon oppression. And demon possession. Now, I build these categories directly out of Scripture. That takes us to point two. We need to define these terms. So, point two is definition. Defin we'll have three definitions, one for each term. Demon influence. 
demonic influence is the invasion of a person's soul by cosmic thinking. Demon influence is the invasion of a person's soul by cosmic thinking. Believers and unbelievers can be demon influenced. One more time for the definition. Demon influence is the invasion of a person's soul by cosmic thinking. In contrast, demon possession will be defined as the invasion and control of an unbeliever's body by a demon. Notice the difference. Demon influence affects the soul. Demon possession affects the body. Now, under demon influence, whenever a person is operating on human viewpoint thinking, worldly thinking, cosmic thinking, all of those are synonymous, they are operating on doctrines of demons and therefore are to some degree demon influenced. Believer and unbeliever, you and me, whenever we are operating on human viewpoint thinking, cosmic thinking, worldly thinking, however we want to describe it, at that point we are operating under demon influence. We'll look at some passages on that in a minute. Whenever a person is operating on human viewpoint thinking, they are operating on doctrines of demons and to some degree demon influenced. Biblical examples of demon influence are Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 because it says Satan put this into their heart to think. Now, they were believers. They were not demon-possessed. He's affecting their thinking. Judas Iscariot at the beginning in John chapter 13, verse 3. We saw it last Sunday. We'll come back in detail this Sunday morning. Satan put it into his thinking, into his heart to betray the Lord. That's demon influence at that stage. And then Demas, one of Paul's associate pastors, Demas, in 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul says, For Demas, having loved this present world, cosmos, having loved the cosmic system, in other words, he got his priorities screwed up, he started focusing on the things of everyday things of the world instead of his ministry priorities, his priorities in the spiritual life, and he deserted Paul. For Demas, having loved this present cosmic system, has deserted me. So those are three examples of demon influence in the New Testament. Demon possession, review the definition again. Demon possession is the invasion and control of an unbeliever's body by a demon. Only unbelievers can be demon-possessed. We'll come back and look at that in detail. Only unbelievers can be demon-possessed. A couple of examples. The man in the tombs that was the wild man that came out of the caves. There were really two of them according to the, uh, I think it was the Luke account. There are two of them. Uh, he's demon-possessed. There's Mary Magdalene out of whom Jesus cast seven demons and there were various others mentioned in the Scriptures that are demon-possessed. It is the invasion and control of an unbeliever's body by a demon. Third, demon oppression. Demon oppression occurs when a person gets involved in extended carnality and is overtly attacked, although he may not know it. You probably won't know it, I think, in this age. 
overtly attacked by demons as part of divine discipline, which results in depression, misery, and unhappiness. But not all depression, misery, and unhappiness involves demons. Now, one of the things I'm going to make a point out of is it doesn't matter where you're being attacked, whether it's from an external base in terms of something demonic, or whether it's from your own sin nature, or whether it's the cosmic system. Remember, there are three enemies, the world, the cosmic system, the world, the flesh, and the devil. It doesn't matter the source of the attack. It doesn't matter. Modern man, modern, this, this modern demonic deliverance stuff says you've got to know where it comes from. No, you don't. Because the solutions are always the same. The solution is always applied doctrine. And it doesn't matter whether the, the source is your own sin nature or whether it's a demon or whatever because doctrine is what defeats all the enemies. Period. So as long as you're in fellowship, walking by means of the Spirit and applying doctrine, you're okay. It doesn't matter where the source comes from, and it's not our job, and I don't even think we can ascertain correctly where the source is. But we need to be aware that there are various dynamics that are going on. This is what the Scripture teaches. And the only example that the Scripture overtly states for demon oppression is King Saul in the Old Testament. I don't know of another example in the New Testament, but it's very clear in First uh, Samuel that Saul is under some sort of demonic oppression, but it is the result of divine discipline and extended carnality in the life of a believer. Now, why do I know Saul was a believer? Well, first of all, the Holy Spirit came on him when he became a king. That's clear. And then secondly, at the end of his life, when he is really in extreme reversionism and he gets involved in demonism and he goes to the witch of Endor and, of course, uh, uh, at that particular time, the witch of Endor... He's dis- King Saul is disguised. The witch of Endor is supposed to conjure up through necromancy uh, Samuel, and the Lord intervenes and actually brings Samuel back, and it really surprises the witch of Endor because this never happened before. And when Samuel speaks, he says to Saul, "You will be with you and your sons will be with me today." So for them to be with Samuel, Saul and his sons would have to be believers. So it's very clear that Saul was a believer. And therefore, I think that category of demon oppression might have been unique to Saul, but it was specifically related to extended carnality and reversionism. So there's three categories there. Demon influence, the invasion of a person's soul by cosmic thinking. Demon possession, the invasion and control of an unbeliever's body by a demon. Unbelievers can be demon-possessed. Believers cannot ever be demon-possessed. And then demon oppression, which is the demon is still operating outside of the person, but may be uh, used by the Lord to discipline the uh, believer and may result in depression, misery, and unhappiness. Point number three. Think about this logically. Demon influence can be direct or indirect. Demon influence can be direct or indirect. Direct demon influence occurs when Satan or a demon directly influences a person by putting ideas into their thinking. Now, that apparently can be substantiated from Scripture. For example, I want to quote the passage 
precisely in Acts chapter 5, you have the episode with Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira were two believers. They were married, and they were impressed by the fact that some of the other wealthy believers were selling their property and giving all of their money to the local church. So they wanted to have the same approbation and the same respect that these other more mature believers were getting, so they decided that they would do it, but they were controlled by materialism lust, and they wanted everybody to think they were giving everything to the church when in fact they weren't. They kept back some in, in price for himself and with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart, your mind, to lie to the Holy Spirit? See, that's a thought. It is not that Satan is indwelling uh, Ananias, but it is that he is filling his heart, his mind with ideas to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land. So Ananias and Sapphira have ideas placed a temptation. Remember, temptation can come from an external source. So you have Satan here. Satan is presenting an idea into the cardia of Ananias and Sapphira. So now they have to operate on volition. This is the temptation. This is the external test. But they have to respond either positively or negatively to that idea. That idea is placed in the mind and they responded, excuse me, positive to the temptation, negative to doctrine, and decided to lie. And I always say these are the first people in the Bible that were ever uh, slain by the Spirit. First. they instantly died the sin unto death because of their lie against the Holy Spirit. Then in John chapter 13, which we just covered this last Sunday, and we'll be there again in detail this Sunday, in um, verse 2, John 13, 2, During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart, the cardia, the mind, the innermost thinking part of the soul, having already put into the mind of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon to betray him. Same dynamic. The devil puts the idea there of betrayal and Judas then responds positively to that and he accepts the temptation and yields to it and that opens him up then as we will see Sunday morning to the next stage which is uh, demon possession. So this direct demon influence occurs when Satan or a demon directly influences a person by putting ideas into their thinking. But we don't know that. Judas did not know that. Ananias and Sapphira did not know, oh, oh, Satan put that. The only way Ananias knew that Satan was the source of the idea in his mind was Peter told him. Revelation. He didn't know it intuitively. He just had the idea there. I don't know how that dynamic works, but apparently it's possible for Satan to put ideas into our minds so we can, um, and we can reject them through the use of doctrine. Now, that's direct demon influence. Indirect demon influence occurs when doctrines of demons, false ideas, are introduced into the believer's thinking through the culture around him, through cosmic thinking. 1 John 2.15 do not love the cosmos, nor the things in the cosmos. If anyone loves the cosmos, the world, 
the thinking of the world, the value system of the world, the priority system of the world. The love of the Father is not in Him. James 3.15, we've seen this already. The wisdom, that is the wisdom that He's already described, human viewpoint, is not that which comes down from above. But this human viewpoint wisdom, notice how James describes it. Human viewpoint wisdom isn't neutral. Let me stress that. Human viewpoint ideas are not neutral. They are called earthly, natural, soulish, sukikos in James 3.15, and demonic. If it's not biblical, divine viewpoint thinking directly stated in Scripture, it and it's, it's demonic. Period. doesn't matter how nice it is, how pragmatic it is, how helpful it is, how good it is, how many people become, become uh, uh, able to solve problems in their lives. If it is in a framework that is false, it is demonic. James 4.4, 4, You adulteresses, you unfaithful believers, do you not know that friendship with the world, with the cosmic system, is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Point four. The Greek cosmos, usually translated world, describes an orderly, cohesive system and organization with a purpose, policy, and structure of authority designed to subvert the thinking of the human race. Let me go over that again. I know you didn't get it the first time. The Greek word cosmos, usually translated world. You know, worldliness is not smoking, drinking. I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls that do. That's not cosmic thinking. I don't know, some of you may not have ever heard that before. That must be a Texas thing. Of course, then it would be, I don't smoke and I don't chew... I don't go with girls that do. See, I talk Texan every now and then. It, it, those are overt sins. And what the rationale which underlies those overt sins may indeed be worldly thinking. But those sins, are those are sins. They are not per se worldliness. Worldliness is a way of thinking. So the Greek cosmos, usually translated world, describes an orderly cohesive system and organization. The, the cosmos refers to that which has an order, which has parts, which is systematic, put together. It's a cohesive system and organization with a purpose, policy, and structure of authority designed to subvert the thinking of the human race. Satan wants to control your thinking. He wants you to think there's all kinds of ways to solve your problems. There's all kinds of ways to get to God. The Bible says there's only one correct way to solve problems. There's only one correct way to God. And that's what God has revealed in the Scriptures. It doesn't matter what your reason thinks. It doesn't matter how much you think that that is awfully bigoted of God to say that there's only one way. How narrow-minded can you be? But God says, I provided the way and I am the Creator. I have the right to do things my way. So, the worldly system is this orderly, cohesive system of organization, which is also called doctrines of demons. I want to close with a quote from Dr. Chafer. 
volume 2 of his Systematic Theology, he writes, The cosmos is a vast order or system that Satan has promoted which conforms to his ideals, aims, and methods. In other words, every generation has different philosophies. They didn't just pop out of man's brain, although in many cases they may be that way. In many cases, the Scripture says they're influenced by Satan. It is civilization, Chafer writes, now functioning apart from God, a civilization in which none of its promoters really expect God to share, who assign to God no consideration in respect to their projects, nor do they ascribe any causativity to Him. This system embraces its godless governments, conflicts, armaments, jealousies, its education, culture, religions of morality and pride. See, it's all-inclusive. From opposite extremes, whether you're talking about atheism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, Buddhism, Satan's worldly system includes all of that. Everything stands against the Scripture and against our Lord who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except by me. Christianity claims exclusivity and everything else wants to be wants to be embrace embrace everything and be all inclusive. It is that sphere in which man lives, Chafer goes on to say, it is what he sees, what he employs. To the uncounted multitude, it is all they ever know so long as they live on the earth. Think about that. Ninety nine percent of the people, all they ever know is cosmic thinking. It is properly styled the satanic system, which phrase is, in many instances, a justified interpretation of the so so meaningful uh, word cosmos. It is literally a cosmos diabolicus. Now, I'm going to have to stop there for lack of time. I did not get to what I wanted to get to tonight, which is a, a detailed analysis of what demon possession is. We're going to, therefore, have to do that somewhat on Sunday morning when we start looking at Judas a little bit, because there are various technical terms that you find in many of the passages that talk about demon possession. And if you do not understand these terms and the context carefully, then you can uh, uh, be misled. So we'll have to look at that in some detail Sunday morning, then we'll come back to it next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You so much for this opportunity to look at Your Word and realize that there is much more going on in this universe than we see with our eyes or that we can come to a knowledge of just through the use of our reason and that Your Word has revealed this to us. It is in Your light that we see light. Father, we pray that we might not respond to these things with a sense of fear but with the realization that you are in control and you have given us everything we need to fight the spiritual battle and that is in your, in your word, the Scriptures. All we need to do is stand still and see the deliverance of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this time in your word and challenge us with the things we've learned. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.